I'm Chris Cohen, and this is Bands to Fans, interviews with professional musicians. For this episode, I spoke with Emily Salliers of the Indigo Girls. We discussed their new live album, which they recorded with the University of Colorado Symphony Orchestra, how putting this show together has influenced her songwriting going forward, and how alternative guitar tunings have led to the creation of some of her most well-known songs. This episode is brought to you by us. Bands to Fans does content marketing for bands and individual musicians. Hire Bands to Fans to grow and engage your fan base. You can find us online at bands2fans.com. And now, here is the interview with Emily Salliers. What was the most challenging part of performing with an orchestra? Well, for me, and it was more challenging at the beginning of our journey of playing with orchestras, so it it got better over time. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was, you know, Amy and I are used to playing our songs pretty much um, sort of in metric time, or at least pretty steady in terms of tempo. And when we got with orchestras, sometimes there was a latency of sound from, say, the percussion or the timpani or whatever it was at the back of the hall where the orchestra was, there'd be that slight delay. And so it was a bit um, disorienting to have to try to play through the songs and sort of keep some center of time mm. um, with, with sound latency. That was, for me at first, a very, very uh, challenging part of it. And then I just, uh, you know, as we got more experienced, we... Um, and I, I don't know if I can speak for Amy if that was the most difficult thing for her, but for me, you know, the more we did it, the more I relaxed with that. You sort of fall into this middle place um, when you've got the amorphous orchestra and then you've got me and Amy, you know, strumming away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of it reminds me of, of, of you know, uh, reading about singers who've sung, like, the national anthem at stadiums, and they talk about the challenge of, you know, there's a delay and, and the sound reverberates and comes back at you off of that. Um, and you kind of have to just, I don't know, it's like you're part of it, but you're kind of screening it out at the same time. Yeah, it was, it, for me, for a while, it took a lot of focus to just perform the songs. It made me kind of tense to make sure I was in time with the orchestra. But, you know, also the conductors are very, very good at, because um, they have to do pop shows like this. Mm-hmm. And so most of them are pretty good at reining in the uh, the tempo and, and keeping it together. And then I got, I just simply got used to the slight fluctuations that were challenging for me at the beginning. So now I can really just play the songs without thinking. And early on, it was a lot of thinking, a lot of sort of inner tension, and and now it's much more free and totally awesome experience to hear all that music behind our songs. (laughs) Cool. Um, And then Amy said in an interview, quote, we didn't want to just slap some classical music on an Indigo Girls track and call it a day. So... What did you guys do to ensure that that did not happen? Well, we picked really, really good um, arrangers, musicians, 
Uh, I I first worked with Stephen Barber on my songs, and then Amy, and then Amy picked Sean O'Loughlin, and then now all our songs are done by Sean, and Sean is just his ideas are creative, interesting. Um, he knows and likes our music, so he has a sense of how he can bring it to life because he's already familiar with some of it. And the other thing is that Amy and I have conversations with Sean as he's arranging the music. And say, for instance, if Sean did a first uh, pass-through of an arrangement, send it to Amy, a little mock-up on an MP3, and she listened to it, and she's like, well, this section could be a little more, I don't know if she if she'd use a word like bigger, or this section could be a little more tense, and then... Sean would know what she's talking about, and they go back to the drawing board and sort of tweak the sections. And so in that sense, it was collaborative and totally avoided, you know, just slapping music on top of our songs, um, being part of the process. But the most important thing is to pick the person who can really, truly orchestrate your songs in a creative way, and Sean is, you know, he's like the jackpot for us. Hmm. And yeah, and that is in, uh, kind of a fascinating challenge because, you know, I'm assuming the two of you have been playing together for so long, you have quite the shorthand when it comes to discussing ideas or expressing how things could be different. But then when you're suddenly working with uh, uh, someone arranging an orchestra, they may not have the same vocabulary. And then, you know, do you guys... Uh, um, you know, do you do you have background in in you know sympathy arranging so that you can throw out those terminology or or how did you meet in the middle? So middle ground. Um, you know, Amy and I have enough. We 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 sang in the chorus in school, and I grew up around sacred music and orchestral music. Like my parents had um, went to go see the symphony a lot, and hmm. so I think for me. And for Amy, certainly, we could say things like, what if the cellos were thicker here? Or really, maybe some bottom end. Um, or I would say, well, on the record, we did this arrangement that's sort of like Peter Greenway's, so is a little bit, you know, left of center and, and a little bit tense and things like that. And, you know, Sean, he's just, he's got a broad sense of what people are telling him and how to translate it. Hmm. Um, and so we didn't really have any problem. We never came back after our conversation and said, no, that's not it at all. You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe Amy went, Amy went two or three times around with him on an arrangement, maybe for one or two songs. Um, but for me, you know, by the time we had conversation the second time around, he, he nailed it. So. Hmm. And then when he's sending you these MP3s of his initial arrangements, um, is it, you know, kind of layered on with, you know, pre-recorded tracks that you guys did, or is it just uh, the the symphony instrumental? It's just, it's all electronic. So in that sense, it's, it truly is a mock-up. It's not, it's not anywhere close to the bigness, grandness, and beauty of the, when you hear the real instruments, because the, so the, so the melody of, so say it's Galileo, he's arranging yeah. And all the parts of the arrangement, you can hear them, but they're played uh, uh, through a synthesizer or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, through fake strings, digital strings. 
And then he's plunking out the melody on a, a synth keyboard or something. So you hear ding, 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 ding. It's very, very mechanical. And, um, and, but mm-hmm. that's the way that you get a sense of how it all works together. And, you know, he, Sean, he's so talented. Um, and, and just to back up a second, you know, talk about interpretation of what Amy and I are trying to discuss with what we have in mind for an arrangement. But the truth is that he brings so much of himself to these arrangements. And then at first it was kind of challenging to get used to hearing that melody plunked out on that fake keyboard and to hear the strings be synthetic but Mm. it's enough of a mock-up to tell what the arrangement is. And then when you get to hear it live, it is like being blown away. (laughs) So there's a little bit of trust in the, well, there's a lot of trust in the arrange, in the arranger. Mm. And there's a, there's communication between us and, and him. And then there's, um, listening to the mock-up and, and then you just somehow know it's, it's right. Uh, and then you get to hear it, and it's amazing. And, and, and Sean, he doesn't do, like, I think, you know, I think orchestras get very bored during pop concerts, so they have a lot of whole notes, and things are very simple, and mm-hmm. just, I think maybe more what Amy talks about, slapping class, classical music on pop songs or rock songs. Um, his arrangements are interesting enough that the word is that we've heard is that the players actually enjoy playing them, which, you know, I'm sure is a stretch for a lot of them. They want to play classical music uh, for the most part, but the response to the arrangements has been really, really good. Wow. All right. No, I mean, that is an interesting compliment that it, well, that it compliments the music, but also that it's, it's, it's enough of a, a, a challenge for them that they, you know, stay engaged with it all. Yeah, and you know, there are, I mean, the conductor will stop and say, let's look at measure 62 or whatever, and then he or she is pinpointing problems where it's challenging for the orchestra. So there's enough of a challenge, you know, they're not just reading simple eight notes and whole notes and bored to tears with it. They're engaged and, and need to work on certain spots that are trickier than others. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's very gratifying for us to hear that, the players in the symphony are enjoying the arrangement. That's important to us. And then, speaking of the symphony, so why specifically did you guys choose the University of Colorado Symphony Orchestra for this? Because we had done a show with them previously, and Maestro Gary Lewis was an excellent conductor, and you know, we work with a lot of conductors who are certainly memorable um, in the whole process. And they're a younger symphony, so a lot of grad students. There may have even been a couple of college students in there, community members. They had a very, very, uh, an energy of uh, being very present in the music. Um, I think sometimes uh, an orchestra position can become a job, you know, which mm. I can see how that would be, how that would be, but it's not that way for the players in that orchestra. So there's a tremendous amount of vibrant energy that Amy and I both hooked into, and um, uh, from an economical point of view, we we couldn't work with a like a major city symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, the union fees are prohibitive um, for this particular project, 
so we were just really fortunate that the orchestra that we wanted to make a record with was the one that worked out best for all the logistical and economic reasons. Hmm. And it's just um, a wonderful orchestra and conductor, and we, we all got along really well. And um, Unfortunately, I had strep throat during the performance, but uh, oh. it worked out. During the recording? Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So I was just, you know, doing my antibiotics and, <laughs> and, uh, just, uh, it was a lot of like letting go, like, this is going to be what it's going to be. It's going to be okay. And, and in the end, it, it was fine from my end of things. Yeah. I mean, you know, your voice still soars at, at, at many points you know it, uh there certainly isn't any indication that you're you're struggling through anything yeah it was it, it was well it was one of those things i've done this long enough that um and amy and i sometimes get sick or or have challenges with our voice after doing this for 35 years so i've reached the point where i'm able to not get despondent about any kind of thing that's going on but just simply to be in the moment of the music and to perform to the very best of my ability. And, you know, Amy and I always give every bit of our heart and soul into our performances, and probably especially this one, because it was so important to us. Hmm. And I've heard from other musicians, you know, because Lord knows if you perform enough shows, eventually you are going to perform sick. And, and, and I've heard from a lot of musicians that, I don't know, it's, it's like once you get in the midst of the show, sometimes... Uh, um, what's bothering you just really kind of fades temporarily, you know, not like you're magically well, but it really just kind of slips to the back of your existence, so to speak. Did that happen here? I would say that. Yeah. I mean, Hmm. it it wasn't like uh, losing for me. It wasn't like losing my voice, which we wouldn't have been able to like, we know at what point, we are unable to perform in a way that's going to be satisfying to us or to the audience, you know? Yeah. And there have been shows in the past, not simply shows, certainly, but other shows where we have to limp through a little bit. And typically the one who's ailing a bit, then the other one is not sick at all. And we sort of hold each other up to the shows. Mm-hmm. But for this, in this instance, it was just, um, it, it wasn't like I couldn't get notes out of my vocal cords or anything like that. So, yeah. There's surely plenty enough voice to do what we had to do. But for me, it was a bit of a, like, oh, this is unfortunate that I had to have this during the time. But as I say, I mean, I don't even know if I should be talking about this. I don't want anybody listening to it. <laughs> the truth is that these are the things that you can weather. And especially as we get older and we've done this, as I say, for 35 years, you know, our our vocal cords need really special TLC, you know, lots of water, lots of rest, mm. vocal warm-ups, exercises, um, fewer shows in a row, all those things that now Amy and I play very, very pay very, very close attention to. Yeah. But- I suppose it's like older athletes who do what they can to keep their body uh, so, you know, fine-tuned and working. It's, it's like that with the voice. Yeah, that that makes complete sense. And it also leads to another question I had in, in that, you know, most of the time it's it's you're a duo and then you're going from being a duo to being a total of 66 musicians playing at once. How did you ensure that the vocals were not overwhelmed 
in that scenario? Did you have to adjust how you sang? No. Um, we have a front of house sound uh, engineer who's been with us for years and years. He knows our voices intricately. He's very, very good at sound. Um, and, of course, we had all the mics set up recording it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a live sound. He had done many, many, many Simpson shows with us, so he knew how to balance things. And then there was the recorded sound, and Trina Shoemaker mixed the record. Uh, we've worked with her before, and uh, she's an incredible engineer. I can't even describe to you how many hours she put in, how hard she worked. You know, there are things that you obviously have to see to bring to life. Sometimes you use a certain compression to bring things out. Mm-hmm. And she was just masterful at all together, getting the levels right. And then Amy and I spent tons and tons of time listening to mixes, writing back to the small suggestions and I'm surprised we didn't drive her absolutely insane with the job. <laughs> it so much, so much work, and she did a glorious job. So this is always a team effort, you know. Like our name gets put on the album, and it, we get the recognition as the band, but the amount of work and effort that goes into it from so many other people is, you know, that their their work is just as the load is equal to our work. Hmm. And then I, I saw you guys perform here in Raleigh just a, a few weeks ago, and I noticed that you guys seem to prefer wedge monitors, i.e. the speakers that sit on the ground as opposed to in-ears. Did you do that for the performance with the symphony as well? Amy uses in-ears. Hmm. Um, so she used in-ears for the symphony. She used in-ears in Raleigh. She always uses in-ears unless we do like a festival thing where it's kind of, they call it a throw and go. It's yeah. a sound check. They don't have in-ears to just like go. Um, so she used in-ears. I tried in-ears many, many years ago. I didn't like them because they felt, I felt separated from the experience. So I'm about to go to in-ears, I think, because they help save your voice. You don't, um, you can hear your pitch much better. Mm. You're not subject to the same changes in the sounds of the different rooms that you play. Mm. Uh, but for the symphony, she, she used her ears and I used a wedge because that, that's what I'm used to. Okay. Was it, was it tricky getting... Most everybody uses... Sorry, go ahead. To say, most, everybody uses, most everybody uses in-ears now, you know, especially in a big... When there are a lot of other players or if you're in a band and... Yeah. Um, I've just been kind of old school about it. Mm. Would, was it tricky getting that mix down right, if only because you've got this massive orchestra blasting away behind you? Amy, uh, for me, I don't even put the orchestra in my mix. I put my guitar and vocal, and then I have a side monitor mm-hmm. on the floor, and I put Amy's vocal and instruments on the side, and then I just hear the symphony live behind me. So my wedges are really not that loud, and that's how I find my balance. Amy's got her own way of uh, dictating what she wants in her ears to our our monitor engineer, who's also been with us for years and years, he's he's so good. Mm. He just knows us so well, and so Amy will adjust 
string sections, brass sections, bring up the orchestra, bring up the harp, you know, bring up the violins, whatever it is that she wants, she can just tell Mike, and he makes the adjustments for her ears. Hmm. And I think she's got the symphony up pretty, pretty loud. So in that sense, she may get that swirling, massive musical experience, and mine is a little more tame. Um, hmm. Because it's it's at a lower volume and it's coming from different places around rather than directly in my ears. Hmm. And one more technical. Like <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, yes. And and one more technical. I was just going to say one more technical question. It, it I was looking at the videos from the performance, and you have both of you have two microphones. Um, that you seem to be singing into, what was the purpose of that? It's just another way to get a uh, different sound in at the same time that could be sort of melded in the mix. Hmm. Um, so each microphone had a different sound, a different purpose, and there was blending in the final mix that had gone on because of the two mics that were there. Okay. And uh, I'm curious, you know, because as, as, you know, we've already talked about, you know, the, the massive amount of work that went into uh, um, creating this experience. Did this whole process change how you viewed any particular song of yours? Well, that's a really good question. I almost have to think about that for a second. Stop and think about it. Um, you know, I just have to say that the arrangements, they bring the song to life in a way that I didn't experience before them. And so now, even when Amy and I are playing as a duo, I hear those arrangements in my head. Hmm. So I think that they've... <clears throat> When you, you know how orchestral arrangements can be. Like, they get used in movies all the time because they evoke emotion. They, they, uh, they, they, they can make you feel things in a very big way when, when the orchestra kicks in. And I think it's the same way with these songs, to have that beautiful sound um, now as part of the, you know, the landscape of the song is profound. And... And what I end up feeling is that those arrangements really bring the messages of the songs home. Mm -hmm. You know, a song like, I'll pick a song like Mystery, that's about a relationship, but it also describes sort of the end of summer and what it feels like outside in the weather and and describing these two people and, and the mystery of what's going on, both in the physical world and in their relationship. And the strings just make that like a movie inside my head. Hmm. So I think that they, the arrangements just bring, bring the songs to life in a new way. But I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that they make me stop and think about the lyrics in a different way. They just sort of heighten the experience. Mm -hmm. Well, along similar lines, have you found that as a result of this experience, it's... Um, affected how you write going forward? 
Well, that's a very interesting and good question because I'm in the midst of writing right now, and so is Amy. We're going to make a new record at the beginning of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I am thinking a lot about, well, one thing I think about now is, quite honestly, I'm a little bit tired of just uh, playing guitar through things. Hmm. I, I did some, when I made my solo album that came out last August, Lyra Sung, who produced it, she plays violin with us on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a lot of playing guitar straight through the songs. Now, I know that there's a place for that, but I think a lot now about placement of other instruments. Um, I don't always want to hear an acoustic guitar up in the mix through a song. So I think I'm just like thinking more broadly about a way a song can be produced musically, and I'm sure that that has something to do with playing with orchestras, um, not having the strummy guitar, my guitar part be such a large part of of the musical picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really changing the way. It's not really changing the content of the songs because I'm, you know, there's a lot to think about politically and socially and otherwise, and right now, right. Obviously. But it is changing the way, or just not even changing, just broadening the way I might think about musical arrangements. And I started thinking a lot about Amy's vocal arrangements, possibly, and that's something I really haven't done before. And I can't help but think it's because I'm thinking a lot about where things, parts, fit musically, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an interesting result of, of this whole symphonic journey and also of making a solo record. Hmm. Yeah, and so I don't know. It, it it almost sounds like now you have you 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 have the kernel of the song, the the foundation, and it sounds like you're looking at all right. There's multiple roads I can take this one down, and which one resonates the most? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you don't know until you get in the studio, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I keep going back to my solo album, but for instance, I had to learn all the guitar parts because I wasn't just playing through the songs in the studio. It was a very different approach. We were mm. very much like, well, we'll use this guitar part here and this other guitar part here, and she sort of paints with a brush like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas our Amy's and my way of recording all these years as we play our guitars while we're singing... Um, and then we, you know, having the guitars in the mix is an important part of the sound. And I'm not talking about changing that drastically. I'm just talking about um, the freedom that comes with doing that rather than just playing uh, a part all the way through the song. Yeah. And kind of along those lines, so... Um I was looking through your guys' Facebook page, and, and you had posted this photo of you guys doing Galileo with Sugarland. And what I thought was interesting was one fan had commented that it seemed like you weren't sure what to do with your hands since you didn't have a guitar in them at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um. It probably looked like that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're putting our hands anywhere else but on a guitar. Yeah. And I have to say, though, it was quite freeing 
to not have to concentrate on guitar parts and just to be able to sing. I loved it. And plus, hmm. Jennifer and Christian are so good. Jennifer's voice is just so big and glorious. And um, that was a moment of joy. And I can't remember what I did with my hands, but it probably did look a bit awkward. <laughs> but in terms of just singing and not focusing on guitar, really, really freeing. Really, really fun. And because it takes you sing differently when you play when you're playing at the same time. You just do, you know? Mm. I think there are a lot, a lot, a lot of bands with lead singers who aren't playing instruments throughout the whole show. You know, they're just focusing on their singing and their performance and oh my god, I just saw Janelle Monet in concert. Oh my gosh. I just mm-hmm. she just blew me away on so many levels. Wow. Um and I'm not saying you're not going to see me and Amy put down our guitars and start to dance, but there is a certain <laughs> like um, a power to a show where she she did play guitar some, but mostly she sang and danced, and her message is incredibly powerful. The show, the the visuals were powerful. The band was amazing. The lights, the whole thing. Hmm. So um, yeah, I get a little bit of a I don't know a, a, an advanced middle aged yearning for. <laughs> <laughs> a different way of doing things sometimes. Yeah, no, that, that that is interesting point, just the whole idea that you sing differently when you're not, you know, when your brain isn't split between trying, you know, focusing on vocals and focusing on the guitar part at the same time. Um, and I don't know, I, I wonder, it's like, if would you would you write differently if you just, like, okay, I'm just going to write vocals right now or just record vocals and then figure out the guitar part later? It's very hard for me to imagine writing like that. I mean, I really like using the guitar, um, obviously. <laughs> yeah. It's what I do. I, 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 can't, I can't see it being as gratifying not being able to play guitar or maybe even a little bit of keyboard or whatever stringed instrument. I love the ukulele um, mm. to write with. So I don't think I, I mean, I could do it as an experiment and for fun, but I enjoy the integration of the instrument and that seems to be how the song for me best finds its way, you know, out, out into the open. Um, and it's also interesting to me that like some songs we record with electric guitars on albums, but we can still play them acoustically, like Go, for instance, has electric guitar all over and um, there's electric guitar, even with the symphony record. Um, and it easily translates to an acoustic version. Mm-hmm. And for my solo album, this was always a struggle for me because I didn't write with guitar parts all the way through. Mm-hmm. And when we went to go do you know, duo shows with me and Lyris and shoe player violin, and I never, I have never gotten quite as comfortable with playing the songs. Uh, because I didn't play them all the way through on the record, except for uh, a song called Train Inside that I play almost every night during Indigo shows now. It's because it's, you know, I know the guitar part, I can play it all the way through. I'm used to it. So those kind of, and lyrics is always like, it doesn't matter, it's just a different incarnation, you know? These songs hold on their own with, with just the acoustic guitar and, and the lyrics, but I, I never have been able to make the full connection, and so I pretty sure my most authentic and best way of working involves uh, sitting with an instrument while I write. And speaking of Train Inside, you recently posted a 
guitar lesson video where you show how to play that particular tune. And you start off, the first thing you mention is you talk about how it's not in standard tuning of the guitar for that song. And mm-hmm. when um, a, a couple of months ago, when I interviewed Jonathan Brooke, and she talked about her love for unusual tunings, um, and you know, which which I'm just finding fascinating. A that the the two of you are friends, and then B that you both have this you know affinity for that. And I'm wondering why do alternative tunings appeal to you? Ah, they just well. First of all, for me, they take me to a different song. So, for instance, if I'm writing a song in the key of D. When I can't play that bottom string, it feels limiting to me at times, unless mm. I want to just play a very a much simpler approach to the song, and sometimes that's what the song wants. But for me, if I drop that D string, it just gives me a lot more bandwidth um, for the writing of a song. And also, you know, I grew up listening to Joni Mitchell, who was queen of alternate tunings and I, I had her songbooks and I'd look at those I'd, I'd tune my guitar to those tunings and to be able to play the songs as I heard them on her albums I can't describe the thrill that that was because if you get close it's not the same thing mm. so part of it you know is my love for Joni and the first time I heard the story and I heard Jonathan and I heard those guitar chords I'm just drawn to it you know mm. um, and I think they can like if you do a whole like a an open tuning if you're the open key of e or open d there's a sort of um a drone quality to it that i find very propelling for certain kinds of songs to be written Hmm. that i find i can find quite moving at times they can take me to a song that wouldn't have been born if i played it in standard tuning and then there are some songs that need to call for just standard tuning. And I just know that when I'm writing them. It's hard to explain. But I know that, that alternative tunings, or alternate tunings, I guess is what they call them, have opened up a whole new world of songwriting. Mary Chip and Carpenter taught me this tuning where you drop the low string to D and you drop the high string to C. And I wrote Galileo with that, cold beer, remote control, like five or six, fairly well, um, a song called Run. I mean, hmm. like maybe close to ten songs from that tuning. Wow. So that just, like, opened up a whole new world for you in a way. It, it, really, it really did. And I don't think there's an album that, we, that Amy and I have made where my songs didn't include some with alternate tunings. And um, and then also, you know, um, the one thing I talked about with Jonathan is, is, is the songwriter's workshop that she does and that uh, you have been a guest at where, you know, you're, you're working with these up-and-coming young songwriters. And I'm curious, what do you take away from that experience? You ask such good questions. It's so nice. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know what, I just did a, uh, my friend, Buffy Motter, who I've known in the Atlanta music scene for, oh my gosh, 30 years. She has a master guitar class. She teaches uh, guitar. 
And I went to that class, and she has little kids as young as, like, eight years old. And then people who are, you know, probably in their 60s, maybe 70s. So it runs the gamut. And and also in terms of the level of their ability to play the guitar. And I came away so inspired purely by the uh, the growth of, of learning and playing, of the joy of learning an instrument, um, people working on craft, you mm. know. And when I do this songwriting, I'm getting ready to leave the National on Saturday to start my own workshop. And I always take away, like, for instance, I'm sort of more of like a narrative. I use a lot of imagery. I love metaphor in my mm. songwriting. But there are a lot of students in the class who don't write like that. They either mm. write very simply, non-poetically, um, or they write zany kind of lyrics that are just so clever and stuff that I could never do. And so it doesn't matter the level of your ability to play guitar or write a song. There's always something that I glean if I can't do that sort of thing myself. And it just sort of broadens me and stretches me. And I'm just also inspired by people who, who try to get better, to grow, to use their brains and their hands to, to make beautiful things, to make beautiful music. So I learn a lot about that from those workshops. And I learn about how important it is, really, if you want to grow, to spend time working on it. Hmm. So, you know, like me, songwriting is like a business, like after I, not, not, not money business, but like a scheduled business. Like So, like, after I do this interview, I'm going to go down, and from this time to this time, I'm going to work on my new songs. I have hmm. no idea what's going to come, what instrument I'm going to use, what tuning, what key. And then I'll go down there and maybe I'll start and see, start an idea, eh, get maybe 20 minutes in, lose interest, throw a paper <laughs> on, see if it's better up fifth fret. Uh, maybe that leads me to another song, try a different tuning. Who knows what will happen? But between the hours of blah, 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 and blah, 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 I'm at my office. And when I do those songwriting workshops, there are exercises and times that the students and working on their songs, and it's inspiring. They're, hmm. they're hard. They take a lot of concentration. You know, they're like four days long workshops, and they're all day long, and sometimes into the night. And you're doing a lot of listening of the students, and you want to be encouraging while still, and you want to point things out while still realizing that it's subjective, you know, which is kind yeah. of a fine balance to find. And. So they take a lot of energy, but it's just the most worthwhile experience to be in the process of creating with other people. And when you go down into your own studio, and you know, and obviously you're very disciplined in saying, "Okay, I'm going to work at this and devote myself to it for for so many hours." How do you gauge um, productivity? Like it. it you know, for someone like myself, it seems like I could go in and if I don't come out with something like a song, I would feel like, you know, despondent. But is it is it the attempt? Is that as valuable as the result? 
Well, I don't know if it feels as valuable, but it is as valuable because <clears throat> the only way to ever get to a song that's completed is to just start bouncing around ideas. And it's hard to write a song, you know, it's not easy. It's kind of mentally draining. And sometimes I'll start to sit down and write a song and tears will start coming to my eyes. And because it's like, okay, you know, you just open up. I just open up and dig around and see what's in there. Look at my notes, listen to my voice memos of ideas that I've recorded. And so it's like practicing. You know, as a kid, I never wanted to practice. I, I took classical guitar for two years. I, did, I didn't want to practice, but I did practice, and I got better because I practiced. And there's no way I'm going to write a song unless I go down there and grind it out, and try different things. And I just finished a song that um, I thought is for Amy's and my new album that we'll make. And I finished it. I thought it was done. I was like, okay, that's done. But it was nagging at me a little bit, like, well, maybe I should go back and and take a look at these lyrics and, and maybe maybe need, maybe the bridge is too long. I just had these nagging thoughts. Hmm. And so I went back and I really completely revamped it. I mean the the idea and the nuggets of the song remained the same, but the bridge is half as long as it was. Um the I changed the, a lot of the lyrics and images and now it's done. I know it's done. Hmm. So I think the process well, it may not feel as satisfying like when you really get to that point where you know you have a song. It is a really, really good feeling. But, you know, then it's like, oh, man, if we're going to make an album, I have to write five more. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think we, we, work really hard. we work hard at our music. You know, we don't just... We work, you know, and mm -hmm. and the best job in the world, but it still involves discipline and work and hammering away at things that never come to fruition sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, <laughs> just as kind of a fun question, regarding a recent Netflix special you appeared in, how would you rate Tig Notaro as a drummer? <laughs> I thought she kept steady beat. Okay. Not used to playing drums, and she's recording a live television special. And there's all technical things that you have to think about too. I mean, I thought it was awesome, <laughs> and uh, that that makes me smile just to think about it because you know Tig is so dry, but she just got behind the drums and just played the hell out of them, you know. Yeah, I I was impressed. I didn't I didn't see that coming. It, I didn't see it coming either, and, it, and I was impressed too. And it just, it just made us laugh and feel good. And and any time the drums kick into a song, things get better for me. <laughs> I love it when drums, drums kick into a song, and I'm happy. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, cool. And, and then finally, I mean, you know, because you've been doing interviews uh, in regarding this album, is there anything? that you want to discuss about the new album that you, you really haven't had a chance to talk about with others or that people haven't asked you about? Um, I think, you know, we've gotten a lot of response from people listening to the album, and they, they tend to really love it, you know, which is gratifying. I think it's 
I mean, some people just listen to music and, and, and that's it, and that's great. That's what you want. I mean, you want to, you want to put it, if you have a good uh, um, turntable and speakers and you put that on and you blast it, everything that we had with the team that we had was put into making that album sound as good as possible. And it was many, 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 many countless hours of work to achieve that. So I think that if, if, if you put it on and you play it and you love it, that's the whole point. But I would also just remind people who are interested in it that there was a recording engineer who did the best of his ability. There was a monitor engineer. There was each individual player. There was the conductor. There was me and Amy. There was our guitar tech who was making things run smoothly. There were all the microphones and the placements. And then there was the engineer. And then there's the mastering and, and cutting the lacquers and and so I sometimes think about what goes into the making of an album, and it, it, it's tremendous to think about. But this album in particular, I mean, it's the biggest team that's ever been assembled that we've worked with, and um, I think it's a cool thing to stop and think about. But in the end, the point is that people put it on and love it. That's the show. Thank you for listening. You can find more interviews at bands2fans.com. Our theme music was created by isourcemusic.com. For more about them, follow the link in the show notes. And please check out our other podcasts, Connect to Fans, where I interview insightful and creative business people, and A Healthy Dose of ER. Two longtime friends talk through episodes, dish about characters, and basically revel in the fact that their favorite show is finally available for binging. You can find that at erpodcast.net. <laughs>